0: Welcome to the Musical Communication Podcast. I'm your host, Marianne Ploger, And during these podcasts, I'm looking forward to being able to explore all aspects of what it is to be musical, whether that is how we can be more musical as musicians, or how we can understand why we love music and why we think it's musical or why it isn't. So we'll be exploring everything from how to perform music, how to listen to music, as well as aspects of music and cognition.
1: Hi, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Musical Communication Podcast. My name is Karen and I am your producer. I am sitting here with your host, Marianne. Welcome. Oh, hey, thanks, Karen. So good to be here again. Yes, I'm so excited for us to ramp up another bunch of episodes and to share more things. Um, we are so grateful for all of you that are listening. Um, we got notification that there's been a thousand downloads of the podcast. That's wonderful. Yes, we are so excited. It's so fun to know that um, you are here with us and, and you're listening and, and being a part of this community. It's very, very exciting. Um, we've also gotten a bunch of questions from our listeners, so we are very excited to record some episodes addressing those. Um, so stay tuned for that. Um, but today's episode is going to be about the Ploger method and how it is for how it encompasses the ability to be. Cross-jet, like genre-ish, mm-hmm. and it's not just about classical music because that's been like one of the main questions we've gotten: Like, is this only for classical musicians? So, um, Marianne, can you share with us your thoughts on your method and how it is for not just classical music?
0: Absolutely, and such an excellent set of questions there. So, my whole philosophy is that this should work for everything, whatever genre. So, even Fourteen years ago when I first came to the Blair School of Music, uh, years and years ago then, I said that, wow, we need to be able to create something that's useful for any genre because that is going to be the future. So classical music is, I hope, going to always be part of that. And in one of these episodes, I'll talk more about that. But ultimately, this is something that's for everyone. Why? Because from the observations I've made, there really are just 12 pitches that we perceive. That is to say, we can feel between the pitches, we can sing between the pitches, but in an octave, many scientists and other researchers are finding that there seem to be just the 12 that are used in speaking language, for example, that we intone basically 12 pitches in an octave. So. We use, of course, the equal temperate scale in on the modern piano, and this is a really important consideration. But one of these episodes, I'll be talking about the origin of those pitches and why there are only 12. But essentially, this is a very important thing. I don't care what genre you are. You can have a genre, let us say, you are singing in sacred music in India. Well, you may be intoning, or if you're playing on the sitar, playing between pitches. But still, if you listen, there are still those basic pitches. What's happening is we're playing in between those that are designated in the equal tempered scale. And that's just the, to me, the equal tempered scale is like a ruler. You got a foot, you divide it into 12 equal or approximately equal, depending on which equal temperament you're using. Uh, you very definite semitones that are of the same basic size relative to one another so ultimately it doesn't matter if you sing between them those are the principal pitches so with that in mind it means that we can all be agreeing that there are these basic 12 pitches and then we start worrying about well when you combine those two pitches as i've talked about before essentially they're forming what i call a dichord and that is a unique sound Mm -hmm. That means, though, if there are 12 pitches, then there can only be 11 different pitch pairs in the octave. 11. Not 10,000 different words we have to memorize or deal with, but just those. Again, how they're tuned, those dichords, and what the particular scales that are being used, still, ultimately, there are going to be those basic 11. So with those tools in hand, then we can start playing any genre. So uh, I've been somebody who, as a young person, played a lot of pop music. My mom had pipe throughout the house, the popular music channel. So I always heard tons of pop music. And in fact, at the same time I was growing up with things from the Cleveland Symphony and Eugene Ormandy and Zell and all these great classical orchestras, uh, those recordings. I also had Edith Piaf, Frank Sinatra, and all of the great crooners from the 1960s and before. Mm -hmm. so And even French as well as Italian and others. So I love the pop genre, and I have even composed music in the pop genre, and appreciated the fact that popular musicians speak a native language. They create within that language. It communicates within their
1: language. And there are twelve pitches and eleven die chords. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And I, I wonder if you have a food analogy for what I'm about to ask, because to me, it seems very interesting that even just the question of, is this this method with you know, twelve pitches and eleven die chords, that we would separate it from cuisine almost, where it's like it's just food and it's just ingredients, like we're not so polarizing to my knowledge, with like what we eat or how we feel about it. We just call lettuce, lettuce, or onions, onions. Like we don't, you know, get split hairs about it. So why why do we tend to do this in, in music?
0: Oh, that's an excellent question. I believe that we are very much attuned to the native language that we speak. So, and same with cuisine. If you're raised in Thailand, you're used to that food and to those of us who have never had that if you're from some uh, small village or some place in the world that does not have any kind of cuisine like that it can be a shock yeah. to the brain to suddenly have something different so there are many more herbs and spices and flavors than there are pitches and die chords in music but the language, the way that rhythms are combined and used, the phrase structure, the rhythmic underlying structure can be very different in different cultures. So I think we are naturally hooked in. If you are hooked into a classical genre, your brain really hears it and gets it. Now, one of the things I would like to say, though, is in my experience, just like great food is great food. I don't care what the cuisine is. If you're (laughs) having an open mind and palate, it's great bad food is bad food. (laughs) You're not going to convince me it isn't. So if you have an open mind and you taste it and it's a little rancid, you're probably not going to eat it. If it's different or stimulating to different parts of the palate, it's delightful. So I think that this is the way it is indeed with music. As we mentioned, we've talked about before, cuisine is a really good way of thinking of it. I do think though, that music has a linguistic aspect so it's not just food it's a wonderful fusion of aspects of cuisine put together with linguistics with language and so that it's speaking language before language so we tend to understand familiar forms things that are in our culture and things that are foreign we have to we have to kind of get used to mm-hmm. as an example we'll talk about this a bit later with rhythm but when I ask my students to perform exercises in five, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, one, they often have lots of trouble with that because it's unusual. We're used to things in three and four if we're classical musicians, and we're used to them staying in three and going into four maybe, but staying in four after you're there. So not going back and forth, and certainly none of this seven stuff and uh, these complex meters like that. We're not used to that. But in other cultures, that's normal.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: In a recent study, uh, it was shown, demonstrated, that apparently Westerners have troubles being able to handle or understand complex rhythms indigenous to other cultures but what was wonderful is those people from those indigenous cultures elsewhere had troubles understanding western rhythms Hmm. so uh, definitely there are linguistic patterns and things that we get used to what I try to do in my own method is is help us to be able to move effortlessly to become not only strong that is to know what we're doing, and be aware, but also to be flexible, so that we can move in and out of these genres in the same way Gershwin did as he was composing Porgy and Bess, trying to really listen to the polyrhythms of the native peoples uh, in the, uh, off the coast of North Carolina. So, um, is that right? North or South Carolina? I don't remember. But anyway, <laughs> but definitely the ability to adapt and move into whatever culture is needed for the purposes of musical communication. so Wow, yeah,
1: that's so fascinating. Um, For anybody that's new to the podcast, would you mind sharing what are the pillars of your method?
0: Essentially, it is that we can identify musical sounds by ear in an objective way. And this is what's been absent, is that generally speaking, if you're able to do things, it's sort of intuitive, and you don't know how. So people with absolute pitch just intuitively know what the pitches are If you ask them how they know, it's almost as if they think, well, how do you tell lemon from lime? (laughs) So it would seem to be that it's subjective or based on talent. So I'd say the biggest cornerstone in my own method is that we share perceptions in common and that in really understanding what those perceptions are, we can then know that we can communicate so that's what's most novel Uh, that is i figured out i believe i hope at least the beginnings of figuring out um, how to help somebody to be able to recognize each of the eleven dichords chords in half a second so and whether that is stated uh, two notes at a time called a vertical harmony so one note on top of another Mm -hmm. or whether there's one note and then followed by another that ultimately the distance between those pitches is perceived as, as a unique sound, and that it has its own character, its own flavor, its mm. own meaning, and that we can tell it from all of the other dichords of the 11. And uh, just knowing that immediately means, oh, now I know why Beethoven might have used that interval instead of this one, or now I know why that has a noble character versus a more emotional or, or sensitive, let me say, Uh, emotional quality then to it. So ultimately we can understand better what's going on. So that's what I do. Uh, Also rhythms that way too. How do we get so we can consciously count rhythms? We can effortlessly reproduce rhythms. We sing the Star Spangled Banner all the time and have no clue, most of us, what the heck the rhythms are and how they would be annotated. (laughs) Right. Okay. But somehow our brain knows it. So that's probably even deeper than what I said before is this idea that I think we understand music at a very deep level. I call it meta-conscious level, and that ultimately that is that we can sing, recognize, and enjoy music when we are not conscious of of what the elements are. So we just learned to to recognize those elements in much the same way in, in your Analogy of we were mentioning of food, you know, how do I, I tell this flavor? We all t- taste these onions. Um, yeah. You know, how do I use those onions? But how do I recognize onion from garlic uh, mm. when, we, when I haven't been taught to tell that apart at an age when I probably mm-hmm. could have learned it more easily? So I, that's very, very important. You already know in most cases, I, I won't say there aren't people who have amusea, but I haven't encountered one yet. And I've taught many, many hundreds of students. But definitely we have the ability mm. to understand. And we have the ability now to be consciously aware of, of, of be aware, I should say, of how we do it.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot about, you know, how the ideally this is something that's done at a younger age. Mm-hmm. But in your research and experience, um, has age been a factor with any of your students?
0: It's an excellent question, Karen. I tell my students quite often, I certainly have over the past couple weeks told my adult students, many of whom are in their late 20s or 30s, that adults learn faster than children because we already have the programming. All you have to do is learn to aim what you pay attention to Hmm. and you can understand my language. I think the stuff that we need is already there. We can sing the Star-Spangled Banner. We can repeat a rhythm back. It's there. The challenge is, again, how do we identify those things? How, if I want to be a wine connoisseur, can I tell what the ingredients are in that wine, and what type of wine, of course? But how, if I taste a soup, how can I recognize what those ingredients are? And that's basically the process of becoming conscious without having to do a lot of trial and error because we don't have time as adults. Mm -hmm. So my experience, I have taught children, uh, a number of them. And I can tell you that in my experience, adults learn faster by a lot.
1: Mm, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's very encouraging because I think that that's definitely perhaps a common misconception of like, oh, I missed the boat. (laughs) Now Mm -hmm. I just won't ever hear again or whatever. <laughs> not, not true at all. Not true at all. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we're looking at the method itself, um, is there a, a group of people that do, uh, statistically better, um, like are conductors more susceptible to understanding this more brass players, string players, like singers, is there, is there a group of people that have been more successful? Yes. we were just talking about this together before the podcast.
0: I think people who create music, especially jazzers and pop musicians, tend to have an easier time of it. That's mostly because of the fact that they know they have to have certain skills to be able to get by and improvisation is a huge part. So it's sort of like saying, who's going to be a better actor? somebody who has just learned to repeat the lines in a language they don't understand or somebody who is fluent in speaking that language oh already my gosh. yeah so
1: <laughs>
0: so yeah that's i think the difference
1: yeah. yeah that's so good okay well we'll save that bit for for another episode mm-hmm. but um I feel like everybody probably wants to just get an update on your life, Marianne. Like, tell us, like, you know, it's a new year. We're in February now. It's freezing in Nashville. Mm -hmm. Um, How have you been and and what are you up to? Well, thank you for asking.
0: Yeah, I'm doing just wonderfully well. I'm enjoying doing a lot of my Qigong and other meditation processes uh, on a daily basis that have, that's always been an important part of my life, but now even more. So as I'm getting older, uh, making sure that the old body and brain is working on all engines as much as possible, and it makes such a difference. It's fantastic. So I'm grateful for that. Um, Mostly, I am looking forward to, in the next months, Think about how things are are going to be arranged in terms of my intensives that will be coming up in the summer i want to be offering those again under my own auspices as previously i've been offering them through vanderbilt university for which i was grateful but now i'll get to play my own in my own little ball field yes on, you know, <laughs> ploger institute so, yes indeed so i'm very much looking forward to that having two pianos having having a lot of the things that would be difficult uh, at blair so uh, <laughs> i I'm very much looking forward to that. I am definitely watching the culture a lot and noticing how important it is that we're grounded and that the world is getting faster and faster. I feel more and more love and concern for young people, Mm. uh, for what they must be thinking and feeling as we go through global changes and our climate as we go through all kinds of cultural changes and shifts uh, at the speed that they're changing. So I'm very cognizant of that, especially at my age, I'm recognizing the huge difference uh, in my experiences now than uh, when I was teaching privately before. And uh, those changes are different. That is to say they're not better or worse, they're just different i'm so grateful for the technology that i can talk to people i'm working with students one in in london and one in paris right now as well as new york i I don't have a single student from nashville right now hey nashville people please (laughs) come my way we can actually meet in person wouldn't that be nice but i'm so grateful for the technology to make it possible to work with and meet these fabulous musicians around the world so uh, that's quite different that's quite new and i'm getting used to the ropes and, uh, yeah. the, the changes, constant changes in technology and um, some improvements I'm not, uh, but so grateful.
1: So very, very grateful for all of it. Yeah. I'm very excited for all of to come. And I just heard this morning when we were talking about the intensives coming back. Yay. So I know that's been like a really big question from all of y'all listening about when they're coming back. So we have some dates, some tentative dates. Um, May 23rd through the 26th, May 30th through June 2nd. And for an upper level, Mm -hmm. uh, intensive, I forgot the word for a second, Mm -hmm. um, June 6th through the 9th. Mm -hmm. So these will all go live on the website, um, at the beginning of March. So stay tuned for that. Um, and we will give you more details, but, um, I think this is a good place to wrap up. How do you feel?
0: That feels great. Thank you so much, Karen.
1: Yeah. And thank y'all for listening. Um, if you think of it, please leave us a review on Apple music. Um, it is one of the ways where people can find us and thanks again for tuning in.